Father, you know the condition of every heart in this room, every heart that's watching on live stream. Lord, you know the hearts that are really broken by the things that they went through this week, the hearts that are weary, fatigued, or the hearts that uh, just are wounded. You know the hearts that are doing well and just want more. You know every condition. So we're asking you, Lord, in the name of Jesus, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you touch every heart now? We give you our hearts, Lord. Would you bring the healing? Lord, would you bring the direction, the encouragement, the strengthening, the anointing? Would you bring it all upon us that we need, Lord? You know every need. We ask you to touch every person. I pray that nobody could leave this time without being touched by you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're doing a series called Winning the Fight, a series on spiritual warfare. As I was thinking about that this week, I was thinking, here we are, we just, here we are in Texas, and we just finished a Texas summer, and we're talking about spiritual warfare. And that reminded me of a joke. <clears throat> and the joke goes like this. There is this uh, Texan, and he dies and unfortunately goes to hell. And it was the, Satan's, really his plan to, to make everybody as miserable as possible in hell, but every time he checked on this Texan, he seems to be fine. And so he finally went up to the Texan, and he says, and the Texan says, he's happy and smiling. He says, how in the world can you be happy and smiling? It is 90 degrees here with 80% humidity. And the Texan, he, Texan said, I know, just like Texas in June. And he kept smiling. <clears throat> well, the devil said, I can fix that. He went over and cranked up the thermostat to 100 degrees and 90% humidity. And he went back to see what kind of shape the Texan's in now. Well, the Texan had unbuttoned a couple buttons in his shirt, but he's still happy. The devil says, what is up with, how can you be happy? He said, it's just like Texas in July. <laughs> and so the devil said, I can fix that. So he went and he cranked up the thermostat to 120 degrees and 100% humidity. And he went back and the Texan had taken his shirt off, but he's still happy. And the devil said, how can you be happy? I mean, it's 120 degrees in here and 100% humidity. He said, just like Texas in August. And the devil said, okay, I'm going to fix this. <clears throat> so he went to the thermostat, and he cranked it down to way below zero, 25 degrees below zero. And he said, now let's see how happy that Texan is. And he went looking for him, and the Texan is jumping up and down and says, all right, the Texas Rangers won the World Series. God help the Rangers. <laughs> well, I want to remind you of something we talked about last week that's going to be important for us to understanding what we're going to get into this morning. And that is there is a pattern in the book of Acts that goes like this. Acts chapter 1, verse 14, you have the upper room where the disciples are praying. 120 of them praying. Get to Acts chapter 2, verse 4. The Holy Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost and fills them with power. So prayer, then power. The result of that Holy Spirit power is, part of that is Peter preaches a sermon and 3,000 get saved. Now we have ministry. Then we get to Acts chapter 4, we have opposition. The first persecution of the church. Satan, the opposer, is trying to stop the progress of the church. What does the church do? They don't get discouraged, disillusioned, and quit. No, they go back to the prayer room. So we get into Acts, toward the end of Acts chapter 4, they're, they're praying. What happens next? 
Holy Spirit powers poured out again. They're filled with the Spirit again. What happens next? More effective ministry takes place. They speak the word of God with boldness. What happens next? More opposition from the devil, from Satan, the opposer. Remember, his name means the opposer. And so this cycle is something we see in the book of Acts, prayer, power, ministry, opposition. And each time opposition comes, we don't get discouraged and disillusioned and cry and whine and quit. No, we go back to praying. And God pours out more power. And we see more ministry. And then we should expect what to see next. You can talk out loud. Opposition. Okay, so this, this, is, this really is a pattern that not only is in the book of Acts, it is life, it is a normative life for the Christian. It's a normative life of a church that is pushing forward against the enemy. We'll experience this cycle. And if, we're not, if we don't expect a cycle, we can be disillusioned when the opposition occurs. And so we saw that pattern last week. This morning what I'd like to do is talk about now, what does that opposition look like? Satan is the opposer. He's trying to stop the progress of the church here and around the world. How does he go about doing that? What are his strategies? Again, I said last week, I believe there's a sense in which we should read the book of Acts and the book of Revelation side by side. Because in the book of Acts, we see the human agency that is opposing the early church. But in the book of Revelation, the curtain is pulled back and we see that it's actually satanic forces behind those human agencies opposing the church. Let me give you an example of that. Revelation chapter 2, verse 10 says this. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you'll be tested and you'll have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful until death, and I'll give you the crown of life. Now, in the book of Acts, we see that it's actually humans that are casting these church members and church leaders into prison, into jail. But in the book of Revelation, the curtain's pulled back, and we see that it's actually demonic forces behind these human agencies that are casting these church leaders into jail. So today we're going to see from our study in Acts what some of these strategies are that Satan will use to try to stop the church. Now again, we, I mentioned a verse last week, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11. Where the Apostle Paul says that he and his apostolic band, his leadership team, were not naive to the schemes of the devil. They knew what his schemes were like, and they were not naive. They were not taken off guard they were not ignorant of them. But the problem is so many Christians today are ignorant of his schemes and his strategies and are easily uh, disillusioned and discouraged. But we don't need to be because actually the Bible exposes Satan's strategies, the opposer. He, the Bible exposes the way that he opposes the church. And so we're going to look at the ways in which he does that because we're going to look at four strategies, four ways as Satan opposes the progress of the church. And these four strategies we're going to see in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 4, 5, and 6. So you can turn your Bibles there if you like. There's Bibles in the seat back in front of you. And we'll also have the verses on the screen. Now remember, the church in the book of Acts is growing like crazy. I mean, it is moving forward. It has taken ground that the devil has held on to for centuries. The church is now taking it over. 
The Holy Spirit is filling the disciples with boldness to preach the gospel. Power to heal. Signs and wonders are being released. People are getting saved left and right. And so Satan, the opposer, has got to stop this. He's, come, he's, figured, he's got to figure out a way. How do I stop this church? How can I stop the progress of the kingdom of God from moving forward? And so what does he do? Strategy number one we see in Acts chapter 4. The first strategy he uses against the early church is intimidation. I want to say intimidation slash persecution because that was the specific way he was trying to intimidate. And I think that is his first choice. I think that's his first choice. It's been his first choice through most of church history. I think it's his first choice around the world today. How is he going to oppose the church? Number one choice of the devil is intimidation. How does it work? He starts with a command or a law that says something like, you cannot uh, talk about Jesus, you cannot preach the gospel, you cannot proselytize, you cannot tell people Jesus is the only way to heaven. You can't do that in any shape or form. There's some command or law he'll bring about, whether it's a country that comes up with a law, like in many countries, it's illegal to proselytize a Muslim today. You, you are breaking the law of that country to do that. That's the case in Pakistan, where I was in April. It's against the law to do that. And so what happens is, is the devil's going to so, I mean, Satan's going to so use these laws and, or rules, like rules in schools. You cannot share the gospel in our public schools. He's going to use laws and rules and policies. There's certain places you work where, where you might get fired if you share the gospel. So he starts with intimidation by saying, here's a law that you better not break or else. Here's a policy you better not violate or else. There will be consequences. The consequences could be different. Consequences could be something like losing your job or, getting, or, losing, or not being able to teach in schools anymore or getting kicked out of the country. A lot of our workers overseas risk getting kicked out of the country if they share the gospel and are caught. You could be jailed. You could even be killed. Now, we already saw from Revelation 2.10, it's also tr true in other places in the book of Revelation, it's actually Satan. Satan is behind the persecution of the saints. He is behind it. What, what is he trying to do? His goal is to so intimidate us to get us to back off and no longer talk about Jesus Christ. That is his goal. Intimidation. That's his strategy number one. The reason he uses it is because it works so often. It gets Christians to back off. And that's what he wants Christians to do. Back off. Stop sharing the gospel. Because the devil knows the gospel is the power of salvation for anyone who believes. And he doesn't want to lose these POWs, these prisoners of war that he has as we preach the gospel. Because the gospel is powerful. So let's see how this plays out in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 4, verse 1. As they were speaking to the people. Now these are, these apostles that are preaching the gospel, telling people the good news of how Jesus is Savior and Lord. You can have your sins forgiven, and you can have a relationship with God now and forever. They're teaching this and preaching this. The priest and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them. So now these Jewish religious leaders come up to them. Verse 2. Being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. 
So what happens? They're thrown in jail overnight. Then they appear before the Jewish leaders in our question. By the way, we've had, we've had lots of our workers and our partners in different parts of the world be pulled in by authorities and questioned. But then comes the command. Acts 4.18. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. So they're commanded not to do that. Again, understand, demonic forces are behind this command. But not only are they commanded, they are threatened. Acts 4.21. When they had threatened them further, and by the way, a threat is, this is what's going to happen to you if you do this still. They're threatened with the consequences. This is what it will cost you. When they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them on account of the people because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. They're watching the sick get healed. And they're glorifying God. But they're threatened. The threat is pointing out the consequences that are going to happen to you if you keep on preaching the gospel and violate this command. By the way, that is usually enough to stop most Christians. In fact, a raised eyebrow at the water cooler at work is enough to stop most Christians. But it wasn't enough to stop these disciples. What do they do? Well, they go back to the prayer meeting in Acts chapter 4. And they're filled again with God's power, speak the word of God with boldness, and they go on doing ministry. So now what is Satan going to do? That didn't work. What does he do next? Acts chapter 5 now, verse 40. After calling the apostles in, they flogged them. Okay, so now they bring the apostles in, and they're not threatening them anymore. Now the consequences are coming. And they whip them, they flog them, and order them not to speak in the name of Jesus. And then they release them. So now the heat is turned up. This time they're not just threatened with what might happen. They are actually flogged and whipped and then released. Now Satan, the opposer, is thinking at this point, well, that ought to do it. I mean, a good flogging ought to stop people. I mean, it does work probably most of the time, actually. But it doesn't work with these disciples. Let's see what these disciples do. Acts 5, verse 41. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. So the strategy of intimidation using persecution isn't working against these disciples. Let me ask you, don't give me a show of hands, but would it work against you? Would a good flogging stop you? It wouldn't work against you if you remember what, to do what they did. When threatened with persecution of any kind, to stop preaching Jesus, go back to the prayer room. Go back to a place of prayer. Boldness does not come from just grit and grizzle and sucking it up and I'm going to stay the course. That is not how you get bold. You get bold by going to the prayer room and the power of God makes you bold. He will fill you with his spirit and that's what makes you bold. You know, the Apostle Paul understood this. That's why I think it's interesting that he ends 
the most detailed teaching about spiritual warfare in the whole Bible. Ephesians chapter 6, starting at verse 10, he ends that whole teaching by saying this, Acts 6 verse 19, and pray on my behalf. He's asking them to pray for him. When you think of Paul, you're thinking of God that could go into, goes into a city and either causes a revival or a riot, or both. And here he's asking for prayer. What's he asking for prayer for? Pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. See, Paul understood that boldness is going to come by the power of the Spirit, and that is released through prayer. And he's asking people to pray for him. By the way, let me just ask you this question. Who do you know for sure is praying for you? Not who do you hope is praying for you. Because I hope a lot, I hope all of you are praying for me. But I think every one of us ought to have six or seven people that we know are praying for us every day. I've even made little cards with a few prayer requests on them and went to seven people in this church, handed it to them and said, Look me in the eyes and say, will you pray for me? And don't say yes if you're not going to do it. I need to know. I need to know there's at least seven people praying for me every day. You do too. You need to know that. Because every one of us, every one of us, one time or another, has backed away from sharing the gospel when we, when we shouldn't have. Every one of us have. We need to pray for boldness, and we need people that will pray for us to be bold. I'm not talking about being obnoxious. I'm talking about being bold. Speak the truth in love and wisdom, but not be afraid to speak it. And so intimidation doesn't work against these first century disciples. Persecution did not work. Direct confrontation from the enemy does not work. So what's the devil going to do now? What's Satan, the opposer, going to do next? Well, if, op if direct confrontation, intimidation from the outside doesn't work to stop the church, Maybe the devil's thinking, maybe I can get it to collapse from the inside. Maybe I can get moral compromise to be acceptable in the church to such an extent that they quench and grieve the Holy Spirit and they have no power to come against me, the devil might be thinking. Because that's strategy number two. Strategy number two, Satan the opposer is moral compromise. Couldn't stop the church on the outside, so he's going to try Collapse it from the inside. Let's see how that plays out. Moral compromise. In Acts chapter 4, verse 34, it says, and this is a beautiful scene we start off with, there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet. And they would be distributed to each as any had need. So there's this tremendous generosity going on in the early church. Verse 36, now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, he owned a tract of land and sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. What a beautiful picture. I mean, sharing with anyone in need. And by the way, uh, 
I've never known of a need of anyone in this church family in 31 years that went unmet if we knew about it. That's how it ought to be. Now, Satan is watching this. Satan is watching the early church and their generosity, and he's thinking, how can I use this somehow? How can I? He's trying to figure out a way to stop the church and the progress of the church. Intimidation isn't working, so maybe a more subtle approach will work. So let's see what happens. Acts chapter 5. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? This is real interesting because if he didn't have that line in there, most of us would have never thought Satan was behind this. But Satan is up to something. And Peter sees him up to something here. Remember, he's the opposer, opposing the church. Peter realizes he's up to something. Let's figure out what he's up to. Verse 3, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? In other words, you didn't even have to sell it. And after it was sold, was it not under your control? In other words, you didn't even have to give the money. Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. As he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last. The judgment of God came on him. And great fear came over all who heard of it. The young men got up and covered him up, and then after carrying him out, they buried him. Now, for all practical, at least for all outward appearances... Barnabas and Ananias did the same thing. They both sold a piece of property, and they both brought the proceeds and laid them at the apostles' feet. It looked the same on the outside. The truth is, we find out that Ananias only brought a portion of it. Now remember, neither one of them was under any obligation to have to sell their land. They chose to. And neither one of them was under obligation to bring the proceeds to the apostles' feet. They both chose to. Barnabas chose to give it all, Ananias wanted to have the appearance that he was given it all for everyone to see, but he only brought part of it, a portion of it. See, apparently, they had committed to the church they were going to sell, the money, sell their land and bring all the money. But Ananias brings only part of it while he's pretending to bring it all. See, here's the deal. He wanted the credit and the prestige of sacrificial generosity without the inconvenience of it. His motive was not to relieve the poor, you know, relieve the needs of the poor. His, go- his, his motive was to portray himself in front of everybody else as spiritual. So it was deceitful and it was hypocritical. That's what was going on here, hypocrisy. And Peter, by the power of the Holy Spirit, sees behind Ananias' hypocrisy, he sees the activity, the subtle activity of Satan. And he calls him out on it. Again, Acts 5, 3, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back some of the price of the land? So Peter discerned that Satan's behind this. Satan is at work to do what? To weaken the church from the inside because if he can get the church to start, start to accept hypocrisy, 
as normative, then he can quench the power of the Holy Spirit in that church, and that church will no longer be a threat to his kingdom. So Satan sows the seeds of hypocrisy in the church. You know, it's interesting, the story of Ananias in the book of Acts really is what the story of Achan is in the book of Joshua. In both narratives, there is an act of deceit that interrupts the victorious progress of the people of God. Remember what happened when Israel first came out of bondage in Egypt, and then when they finally, after 40 years, are going into the promised land. The first battle is the battle of Jericho. Remember the walls of Jericho supernaturally come tumbling down. But God gives a warning before they get this victory. He warns them. Joshua 6, 19, here's a warning. The spoils of silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. To say something is holy to the Lord means it is wholly his. It is consecrated unto him. It belongs to him. And so you bring it to the treasury of the Lord. So here it is. They're about to take Jericho, and they're going to have some spoils. They're going to get the spoils of, of silver and gold and bronze and iron. And God says, when that happens, all of that is holy unto me, and you put it in the treasury of the Lord. All of it. All of it. But there's a man by the name of Achan in Israel that decided what he would do is keep some of that for himself, so he hid it under his tent. Well, the next week, the army of Israel goes out against Ai. They outnumber Ai 10 to 1. This is like a slam dunk. There's no problem. You should take Ai easily. But instead, they are defeated by Ai. They lose. They retreat. Joshua falls on his face and cries out to God, what is happening here? God basically answers this way, rise to your feet. I told you that no one in the camp is to touch these things that are consecrated unto me, and they touched them. So because of Achan's sin, this is one man, because of Achan's sin of taking what is holy unto the Lord for himself, it brings about the feet of the entire army of God. I mean, this is an amazing story, isn't it? But I can't help but wonder, could something like that be going, be going on in some way, to some degree today? I mean, isn't God the same today, yesterday, and forever? I mean, could it be that the people of God sometimes, at least, are suffering defeat unnecessarily, personally and corporately, because they're taking what's holy unto the Lord for themselves? Here's what the Bible says. <clears throat> the Bible says the tithe is holy unto the Lord. It belongs to the Lord. It's consecrated to him. It's his and it belongs in the storehouse. That's what the Bible says. Look at it. Leviticus 27, verse 30. It says, all the tithe of the land, of the seed of the land, or the fruit of the tree. Remember, this is agricultural society. All the tithe of the land, of the seed of the land, or the fruit of the tree is the Lord's. It is holy unto the Lord. That means that it's consecrated unto him, it's devoted to him. It means it's exclusively his, it's totally his. I think Jay's testimony was was excellent and right on target. His understanding, things shifted for him when he started giving God what belongs to him. 
Malachi 3, 9 through 11 says this. God says through the prophet Malachi to the people, you are cursed with a curse for you're robbing me. The whole nation of you. It wasn't just one man, now it's all of them. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that you, there may be food in my house. That means so the priests could eat and, keep, and do the work of God. And test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. Then I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts. So just kind of a little side note here. Let's, let's all remember to bring our tithes into the Lord's storehouse so his work can get done and so we can walk under an open heaven of blessing. Well, back to Acts chapter 5, Satan is trying to corrupt the church from the inside. Ananias was willing to cooperate and live out this deceit and hypocrisy just for a little while. But think about this. What would have happened to the church if that would have gone unchallenged? Well, it would have, there would have been a, this hypocrisy would have been probably become more and more contagious. And the church would become weaker and weaker, lacking lacking Holy Spirit power, and Satan would accomplish his goal. Stop the church. Ephesians 4.30 says this, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit is a person who can be grieved. The word grieve literally means to cause to draw back. You ever been somewhere and felt grieved by what was happening where you were and you just kind of wish you weren't there anymore? You wish you could just kind of draw back and inside you already have. Tracy and I had dinner with a couple one time and they had a fight right in front of us. And I just, I was so grieved, I just thought, I just want to draw back. I don't want to be here for this. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you're sealed for the day of redemption. If this deceit and hypocrisy would have continued in church, it would have grieved the Holy Spirit. But it was confronted dramatically. The leadership would not allow this moral compromise to come into the church, and it was confronted, and God brings judgment down. By the way, I do think there is something about the level of Holy Spirit power that they were experiencing that required a level of holiness and I think as we are moving into the last days, as we see more Holy Spirit poured out, and we will, I believe with all my heart, we're going to see more and more signs and wonders. We better, you know, this is not a time to have any secret sin in your life. And the Bible says that judgment will begin with the house of God. And I believe that in that house of God, it begins with leaders. You wonder why is it? Isn't it just a little bit curious to you why so many pastors and priests are all being exposed to their secret sin just these last years, this last couple weeks even? So this is a good time to get secret sin out of your life, folks, and walk in holiness as we move forward. So strategy number two doesn't work, moral compromise. Don't let it work on you. I mean, repent from any, any sin right now in your life. Confess it to God and walk in holiness. So now the devil is going to try strategy number three. Strategy number three is division. Division. We know that the word devil means one who separates. 
So we would expect that one of his strategies would be to divide the church, pound a wedge in anywhere he can in the church. The devil heard Jesus say those, these words, a house divided cannot stand. The devil also, I think, heard Jesus pray when he prayed in John 17. Now, whether he heard it right then or not, it's been written down you know, for 2,000 years. He knows what Jesus prayed to the Father. Jesus prayed that we'd have unity for, a pur- for an important purpose. John 17, 21, let's just read it, what Jesus prays to the Father. He says, that they may be one. He's talking about disciples all the way, including us. That they may all be one. He's praying for unity. Even as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us so that, very important so that here, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Wow. There's a connection between the unity of the church and the believability of the gospel. Isn't that what it says? He said, if I pray that they'd be one, they'd be unified so the world would believe you sent me. The devil doesn't want the world believing the Father sent the Son, so the devil is working hard to divide the church. I shared the gospel with a, a guy that came over to repair the satellite TV in the house, and as he's repairing it, I'm talking to him about the Lord, and he asked me what the denomination I was, and I said, well, we're non-denominational. He said, oh, that's interesting. I never heard of that before. He said, I thought you guys just lined up on two sides and threw sticks. What that is. He said, I thought you guys just lined up on two sides and threw spears at each other. Now, it's not surprising to me that he didn't believe the Father sent the Son. Well, let's see what happens in Acts chapter 6. Acts 6, verse 1. Now, at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, here it is, the church is on the march. A complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews, these are the Greek-speaking Jews, against the native Hebrews, the Hebrew-speaking Jews, because their widows, the Greek-speaking Jews, were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. Do you see a potential division here? I mean, the Greek-speaking Jews are complaining against the Hebrew-speaking Jews, saying, you're overlooking our widows. In the daily serving of food, the benevolence ministry. So the devil's got a great opportunity to have their first church split right there. It would have been easy. But the apostles step in and give some important spiritual leadership to keep division from happening in the early church. It's so important that there are spiritual leaders that are committed to the unity of the church. You know, we don't need, you know, we, some years ago we did a unity covenant in our city with 99 spiritual leaders in our city signed this covenant. And the covenant just had a few simple things that we committed to. Number one was we commit to make Jesus famous in our city. Not another pastor, not another church. Don't you, don't you agree that we don't need any more famous pastors? We don't need any more famous churches. We need Jesus to be famous. 
We committed to a second thing, that we commit to cooperate together for the sake of the gospel and not compete. We're not grocery stores. We're all on the same team. And, and that was just a powerful day, and it reminded me of Psalm 133. It says, Psalm 133 reads like this. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard coming down upon the edge of his robes, this high priest. It's a picture of anointing coming down where there's unity. Verse 3, it's like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion and it's watering everything and giving life. For there, the Lord commanded the blessing, life forever. Amen. Can you imagine the Lord commanding the blessing over Arlington and this region? The Lord saying, life forever. How many more people would just easily come into the kingdom with that command over the city? The devil doesn't want that command being spoken over this city. He does not want that anointing of the city. So he's working hard to stop. Unity. He works hard to divide. That's why we have so many denominations today. I tell you, it's embarrassing to me. When I talk to non-Christians about the Lord, and they bring up, and they, and they bring it up all over the world. I've been in several countries where this question is brought up. They say, well, explain to me all these denominations. That's because the devil is working to convince the world the Father did not send the Son by sowing disunity and division. Let me encourage you, if there's someone that's right now, in fact, let's do this. I want you to close your eyes for a moment. I want to pray something. Father, if there's somebody that it's right now you want to bring to each person's mind that they need to reconcile with, to meet with, to get this wedge out between them, would you put that picture, that, that face in their mind's eye right now? Just show us, Lord, is there someone we need to go see this week, talk to? And reconcile, that there be no division. As far as it is with us, no division, Lord. Show us, Lord, right now. We ask in Jesus' name, show us. So see the face. Now, I believe many of you have a face in mind. I want to give you just a little guidance here. If you think that person that you're thinking of right now is 90% wrong, and you're 10% wrong, Go to them with your 10% and just apologize for your 10%. But don't do this. Don't after you apologize say, and don't you want to say something? <laughs> don't do it. Just do your part and leave the rest to God. But anywhere we can, let's, let's sow unity, not division. Amen? Amen? So strategy three doesn't work either against the early church. So strategy number four is diversion. Diversion. Try to get the church to focus on something that's good, but it's not the best. It's not their calling. It's not their mission to stop the progress of the church. Acts 2, Acts 6, I mean, verse 2. So the 12 apostles summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. 
So he tries diversion. He tries to get the apostles to get so busy taking care of these widows' needs that they're not praying and preaching the word anymore. See, diversion can be a good thing. Those widows need to be taken care of. But the apostles were wise enough to realize someone else needs to take care of that so we can stay doing our mission and our calling. Diversion can be a good thing, but not the best. So you need to know what your calling is. What has God called you to do? Let me just ask you this question. Are you, are, are you spending time doing some, some things right now that are keeping you from your calling? Are you busy doing even some good things that are keeping you? Or so, you're so busy doing them, you don't even have time to do the thing you know God called you to do? We were talking to a staff meeting recently about how busy our people are. Many are so busy, they're too busy to do the basic responsibilities of a disciple. And it's not that they're necessarily doing bad things. A lot of them are doing lots of good things, but they're not fulfilling their calling. You know, we're talking about, we know families that, you know, between soccer league and, you know, recitals and music and all the activities the family's involved in, Church is like way down the priority list. There are some guys, there are some church consultants that came up with something they called the third place. I thought it was interesting. The third place. They said everybody has a first, second, and third place. What they meant by that is everybody has a first place. There's a place you live. That's your first place. Your second place is a place that you work or go to school. So everybody usually has a place they live, a place they work. First and second place. The third place is, I think for most followers of Christ, it ought to be the church and the ministry. But for most, it's not, that's not the third place. Third place might be lots of other things. You know, the, the soccer leagues or the recitals or whatever. It can be all kinds of things. And, and where's church? Church is maybe fifth place, sixth place, seventh place. So any time the third, third place comes up and challenges the church, then the church loses because it's not third place. And so I just want to encourage you to think about really what, is, what, is, what really matters. I mean, you're a citizen of heaven, the Bible says. You're an ambassador of Christ. That's why you're here. You exist to glorify Christ. You have a calling on your life. You've been given gifts of the Holy Spirit. And one day you're going to stand before Christ and give an account for what you did with what he gave you. And at that time, standing in the judgment seat of Christ, there's going to be commendations. There's going to be rewards. There's going to be crowns. There's going to be future assignments handed out. In light of all that, don't you think for every follower of Christ that the church and its ministry ought to be third place? I mean, it may, it may take various shapes and forms for you and the community, but shouldn't that at least be third place? Don't let some good thing, even a good thing, keep you from doing your calling, your mission. So we're not naive to the schemes of the devil, the schemes of Satan, the opposer. So we see four of his strategies in Acts 4, 5, and 6. Strategy number one, intimidation. Try to intimidate us, to get us to back off and not talk about Jesus, whether I risk losing a friendship, my job, my freedom, whatever. Some intimidation. Don't let it work. How do you make sure it doesn't work? Go back to the prayer room and pray, God, I, fill me with boldness. Get some people praying for you. That you would have boldness. What about moral compromise? What do you do? You, you don't give in to secret sin, and when you sin, you're quick to repent from it so you can walk in holiness and by the power of the Spirit. What about division? Don't be at odds with any believers. Don't be at odds with any people. 
The Bible says, live at peace with all men as far as it concerns you. So if there's someone you're odds with, go to them, humble yourself so that the devil can't use that. I mean, you are disarming the devil when you do that. You're taking a weapon away from him. Every time we humble ourselves and just say, even again, if you think you're just a little bit wrong, humble yourself. Please forgive me for this. I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have done that. Not, but I did it because you did that. Just humble yourself and just ask for forgiveness. And then finally, diversion. Focus on your calling. You have a God-given calling. It's not just pastors who are called. All the saints, every believer in Christ has a calling. Fulfill your calling. Fulfill your calling. You have to give an account for it one day. Don't be diverted from it. Stay on mission. Stay on point. And so we're going to close. I'm going to, I just want to pray through these four things. Let's all stand together. And we're going to pray in just a moment. And then after that, we're going to have some leader couples up here. They'll be glad to pray for you for any need you have. Also, if you have any questions for any staff members in this far corner, we have Connection Coffee. We'd love to help you connect better here. Up here, we have a welcome area. If you're new here, if this is your first time, I'd love to meet you before you leave. So please come by and say hi. But let's close in prayer. Father, we pray right now. First of all, we just confess and forgive us, Lord, for all the times that we, that we were intimidated and we backed off. When you gave us an open door, and we just, we just didn't do it. We were, we were intimidated. We gave in to fear, fear of rejection, fear of whatever, Lord. Forgive us, Lord. Cleanse us from that. And I pray you'd fill us today by the power of your spirit with boldness, all of us. Fill us with boldness, Lord, to speak the truth in love and wisdom, but boldly, unashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. Also, Lord, for any moral compromise, Lord, we thank you that you're quick to forgive. Show us any sin, Lord, that is hindering the power of the Spirit of God in our life that we can quick to, be quick to confess it and repent from it. And Lord, regarding the visions, Lord, you put some, mind, some people on our minds. Would you now show us how to go about speaking to them and humbling ourselves to try to bring about peace in that relationship and reconciliation? And Lord, regarding diversion, would you help each one of us see what our calling is and that we fulfill it, that we prioritize it, that we wouldn't be easily diverted from it, that we make sure that it takes the right place in our lives. So Lord, we pray all this. We pray that the church would move forward in these days in great power, in great victory, and overcome the opposer with all of his strategies. So I pray your blessing on every person here, every family represented. I pray for health and strength. We pray for anointing. We pray, Lord, you cause us to be shattered the darkness people this week as we walk as a light of the world. And we all pray this together in Jesus' name and say, amen, amen. amen. God bless you guys. You're dismissed. Have a great day.